0: Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 15, Deuteronomy chapter 12 continued. Well, in order uh, that a platform was established for understanding Deuteronomy chapter 12, and the next several chapters as well, we spent some time examining a a handful of basic God principles that were contained in uh, Deuteronomy 12. And the first principle was the one of the established covenant pattern. And the principle is that when the Lord offers a covenant to a nation or to an individual, the acceptance of it is purely voluntary. Okay? One is not obligated to enter into that covenant that the Lord offers. Certainly the benefits that come from being part of that covenant won't be available to you if you reject his offer. But neither are you now subject to some special type of curse or wrath that the rest of the world is not, at least not in the short term, and at least not while you're alive. Now, this covenant principle also has a flip side. And it is that if you do accept God's covenant, then you have obligated yourself to all the terms and conditions set down in that covenant. And we saw when we studied Jeremiah 31 that what we call today the New Covenant is better and more accurate in, in modern vocabulary terms to be called the Renewed Covenant. Okay, And, and as a side note, the name that is emblematic of Christian scripture, New Testament, was taken directly from Jeremiah 31. But we can readily see what happens when a translation is just a few degrees off its mark or disregards the culture and the setting and the plain meaning it originally held because that wall of separation between Christians and Jews and the anti-Semitism that has been characteristic of the Church in general can be traced to this one sloppily translated word, new. If the translation had been more accurate, we today would have Bibles consisting of the same documents, but going under a little different title, the Old and Renewed Testaments. Now think about that. Think about what an enormous difference that one seemingly small change would make. Imagine how that would completely alter the mindset of Gentile Christians towards Jews, towards Israel, towards redemption, towards the nature of our Messiah, and our attitude towards the Bible in general. So we ought not to be so shocked when Torah class members and other groups of believers who have recognized this fundamental doctrinal error that arose from a very simple mistranslation try to explain it to the church at large and it reaches deaf ears and closed minds. Why is that? Because if the institutional church were to accept and correct that little small error and to recognize the self-evident reality that the church cannot possibly be the replacement Israel because the original Israel, as prophesied, is back, lock, stock, and barrel, it would fundamentally change the nature of the church, and force a lot of pastors and denominational leaders to admit that much of the basis of their theology and traditions isn't accurate and it needs to be amended. Now, Jeremiah makes it clear that the fundamental differences between the original Mosaic covenant and its future renewal by the Messiah is the covenant's mediator. Further, that the Lord himself will put the Torah's laws and regulations into one's heart, meaning mind, meaning into your mind, into your thoughts, whereas it was a command upon the individual in the original giving of the covenant that each person should put it into their own heart, into their own mind, by means of self-discipline and an intent towards scrupulously following these divine regulations. So for the modern believer, here's the rub. What's the difference between the Mosaic Covenant found in Torah and what we typically call the New Covenant in Christ? Very little. Which is why Jesus said so loud and clear, in Matthew 5:17 through 19 that the law and the prophets had not passed away and they wouldn't until heaven and earth passed away the essential difference lay only in a who the mediator of the covenant was Moses versus Yeshua and b how one came to agree to be part of the covenant The way the covenant in Moses' day uh, you gained membership to the covenant in Moses' day was to become physically part of the nation of Israel. Males that meant even submitting to a Brit Milah, a circumcision ceremony. For females, they either had to be born into Israel or declare allegiance to Israel or marry a Hebrew male. That's how you became part of Israel. Today, the way to join God's redeeming covenant with Israel is by means of faith in the works and in the person of Messiah Yeshua. And the nature of that covenant and of being a party to it, though it's grounded in the terms of the Mosaic covenant, is spiritual. But the spiritual covenant, of course, continues those terms and conditions that are basically those of the covenant of Moses. Now, how those terms and conditions precisely manifest themselves may be a a bit different because they become culturally neutral and are taken to a higher level in Messiah, but every last God-ordained principle of Torah remains the same. In fact, Paul spends a lot of time in his letters, in his epistles, speaking of the do's and the don'ts of the covenant in culturally neutral terms. The point is that the requirement of the new or better renewed covenant is not only to demonstrate love, which seems to be the sum total of requirements for the believer in the modern day church, but also it is required that we obey and observe all the underlying principles of the Mosaic Covenant. We have obligations to God as a result of our accepting Jesus. The trick, of course, is how do we apply those principles in modern culture and times? How does the lack of a physical temple and priesthood in Jerusalem affect matters. Okay. How do we take into account that Yeshua has atoned for our sins for a once and for all sacrifice? That's what we have to grapple with today. Now another principle established in Deuteronomy is that God is knowable. Now we've discussed that principle in depth. Because most of us have grown up in Western Judeo-Christian culture where the idea that God is knowable isn't particularly surprising to us. But in Moses' day, such a thought was almost laughable. And it flew in the face of everything universally understood at that time about the world of the gods. God has revealed himself to us. He has given to us his laws and his regulations which explains his justice system and his character and he's made it clear that he cares about us, that he's available to those who love him, that he doesn't change, he doesn't evolve. He he is not a distant God, nor is he inherently ambiguous. He's present and he's precise. Therefore, by definition, he's an entirely different God than the false pagan gods of the Babylon mystery religions that the rest of the world, other than Israel, worshipped. Now these God principles then led us to the next one. Yehoveh is entirely different from all the gods of the myriad of Babylon mystery religions Then, because of that, he's not to be worshipped in the same manner, same manner that they're worshipped. Israel is not merely to convert some pagan altar or shrine by rededicating it to Yehovah, which was kind of the common practice of that era. Israel's not to mix the pure Torah instructions with familiar but impure pagan traditions in their worship of God Almighty. They're to destroy whatever pagan altars and places of worship that exist within the land, meaning the land of Canaan, that God has given to them. And finally we ended with a God principle that while so essential to understanding mankind's current condition and then future, our future destiny, is terribly misunderstood within most of Christianity. It is that the terms and conditions of the covenants that God has offered to men are heavenly ideals. The terms and conditions are stated as expressions of perfection. Okay. Notwithstanding their ideal nature, physically speaking, every law Every command can and should be followed and obeyed. There is nothing inherently impossible or too difficult for humans about eating certain foods and not others, about making a pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem when it existed, with refraining from telling a lie or from committing adultery or killing a man unjustly or observing a seventh-day Sabbath. We're all capable of giving offerings, even if it might give us a bit less to live on. We're all capable of celebrating the biblical feasts, and so on. The problem has never been that man wasn't created as able to fully obey God. It's been that our sinful natures and our evil inclinations along with the resultant nature of corroded cultures that we live in today today makes the full performance of these ideals a practical impossibility. In fact, the ideal result that God has in mind can't even happen anymore. Without Messiah Yeshua making it happen, so fallen and spiritually deformed is mankind. That, of course, does not mean that as the Savior's disciples, we're, we should abandon trying to live up to those written ideals. We're to strive for them at all times. In the New Testament, is in fact Paul refers to this attempting the striving for these heavenly ideals as perfecting the saints okay and running the good race now since we only got as far as verse 4 so got so far as verse 4 last week in Deuteronomy 12 let's reread the whole chapter so we can get our basis so open your bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 12 we're going to reread the whole thing If you have the complete Jewish Bible, it's page 211. I love this chapter. The words are just powerful. Here are the laws and rulings you are to observe and obey in the land Adonai, the God of your ancestors has given you to possess as long as you live on earth. You must destroy all the places where the nations you are dispossessing served their gods, whether it's on high mountains or on hills or under some leafy tree. Break down their altars, smash their standing stones to pieces, burn up their sacred poles completely, cut down their carved images of their gods, exterminate their name from that place. But you're not to treat Adonai your God this way, rather you're to come to the place where Adonai your God will put his name. He will choose it from all your tribes. You will seek out that place, which is where he will live and go there. You may bring there your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tenths that you set aside for Adonai, the offerings that you give, the offerings you have vowed, your voluntary offerings, the firstborn of your cattle and sheep. There you will eat in the presence of Adonai your God. You will rejoice over everything you set out to do, you and your households in which Adonai your God has blessed you. You will not do the things we do them here uh, the way we do them here today where everyone does whatever in his own opinion seems right, because you haven't yet arrived at the rest and inheritance which Adonai your God is giving you. But when you cross the Jordan and live in the land Adonai your God is having you inherit, and he gives you rest from your surrounding enemies so that you are living in safety, then you will bring all that I'm ordering you to the place Adonai your God chooses to have his name live your burnt offering, sacrifices, tents, the offerings from your hand, all your best possessions that you dedicate to Adonai, and you will rejoice in the presence of Adonai, your God, you, your sons and daughters, your male female slaves, the Levites staying with you inasmuch as he has no share or inheritance with you. Now be careful not to offer your burnt offerings just anywhere you see. Do it in the place Adonai will choose in one of your tribal territories. There is where you are to offer your burnt offerings and do everything I order you to do. However, you may slaughter and eat meat wherever you live, wherever you want, in keeping with the degree to which Adonai your God has blessed you. The unclean and the clean may eat it as if it were gazelle or deer, but don't eat the blood. Pour it out on the ground like water. You're not to eat on your own property the tenth of your grain, new wine or olive oil that you set aside for Adonai, or the firstborn of your cattle or sheep, or any offering you avowed, or your voluntary offering, or the offering from your hand. No, you're to eat those in the presence of Adonai your God in the place Adonai your God will choose. You and your sons, daughters, male and female slaves, and the Levites, who is your guest? You are to rejoice before Adonai your God in everything you undertake to do. As long as you are living on your property, take care not to abandon the Levites. When Anadi your God expands your territory as he's promised you, and you say, I want to eat meat, simply because you want to eat meat, then you may eat meat as much as you want. If the place which Adonai your God chooses to place his name is too far away from you, Then you're to slaughter animals from your cattle or sheep which Adonai has given you. Eat it on your own property as much as you want. Eat it as you would gazelle or deer that unclean and clean alike may eat it. Just take care not to eat the blood because the blood is the life. You're not to eat the life with the meat. Don't eat it. Pour it out on the ground like water. Do not eat it so that things will go well with you and with your children after you as you do what Adonai sees as right. Only the things set aside for God which you have and the vows you have vowed to make, you must take and go to the place which Adonai will choose. There you will offer your burnt offerings, the meat and the blood on the altar of Adonai your God. The blood of your sacrifices is to be poured out on the altar of Adonai your God and you will eat the meat. Obey and pay attention to everything I'm ordering you to do so that things will go well with you and with your descendants after you forever, as you do what Adonai sees as good and right. When Adonai your God has cut off ahead of you the nations you are entering in order to dispossess, and when you have dispossessed them and are living in their land, be careful, after they have been destroyed ahead of you, not to be trapped into following them, so that you inquire after their gods and ask, Well, how did these nations serve their gods? I want to do the same. You must not do this to Adonai your God, for they have done to their gods all the abominations that Adonai hates. They even burn up their sons and daughters in the fire for their gods. Well, big changes are afoot. Israel is about to abandon the ways of the Bedouin desert wanderers that they have been experiencing for the past 40 years and assume the life of a settled society based around agriculture and herding in the land of Canaan. Therefore, these changing societal conditions mean that the ways they can carry out God's principles are going to change a little bit. Now, Dwayne... L. Christensen, who is the author of the World Biblical Commentary on Deuteronomy, says this about the Israelites' changing circumstances and how it relates to ours. He says this, A true theologically conservative position, one that preserves the values of our heritage, is a position that stands between the extremes and preserves the tension between them. It's not enough to maintain that religion itself has changed constantly since the time of the wilderness experience of ancient Israel. Older practices may be outdated, but the values that produced those practices in times past remain valid in the present. The pressing task is to find new forms that preserve those timeless values. Moses is about to order new forms that preserve those same timeless values that God gave to Israel on Mount Sinai. And the first order of business has to do with just where God's sanctuary is going to be located and whether or not it is to remain as the sole place where sacrificing is to occur. And it is this place where Yehovah's name will dwell. Now, this is an important concept to understand. Because wherever His name dwells, there He is accessible. It's also important because this drives home the point that God himself, meaning the sum of all that he is, will not be dwelling in the tabernacle. He never has and he never will. The sum of all who God is dwells in heaven, not on earth. And he certainly doesn't restrict himself to some building made by men. The idea of his name dwelling there then deserves some discussion. For us modern Western culture folks, the meaning of a person's name is simply it's a means to identify that person from the millions of others. That's all it is. But in Eastern culture, and particularly in biblical times, a name had a much broader and more significant sense to it. In Hebrew, the word we trans- uh, translate as name is Shem. okay, And it means reputation. It denotes a whole set of attributes and characteristics of a person. So when the Lord's name is established in a place, it means that His essence and nature is attached to it and, and, and that some or all of His unique attributes are present, or at least represented there. Now, while the idea of establishing His name somewhere is a mysterious thing, no matter how we might try to explain it or define it, one way to think of it, I I believe, is in the same vein as this mysterious thing of His Holy Spirit living in us. Is the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, actually the totality of all that the Lord is? Apparently it's not. Or we would not have the Ruach within us uh, being instructed in the Bible to pray to the Father who is in heaven, our Father who art in heaven. Rather, there is some essence or attribute of him that dwells within these these fleshly tents that are his believers. Now I think it's fair to say that in Moses' era, just as the Lord will establish his name at a location of his choosing, in this case somewhere in the land of Canaan, for all Israel to sacrifice, he has also established his name within you his believers, and that the Holy Spirit dwelling in the human disciple of Jesus is roughly equivalent in the days of old to Jehovah to, to dwelling with his Israelite worshippers by appearing above the mercy seat in the wilderness tabernacle and later on the temple. And verse 6 says, that it's at this one location where Jehovah has established his name that all the tribes of Israel are to go to worship and sacrifice. Now for us, the words worship and sacrifice seem of themselves exacting enough to define their, their meaning because somewhere along the way we have determined that we have almost unlimited choice to determine what worship and sacrifice amounts to. The problem is that while we indeed have some freedom in that regard, we also have boundaries. And the one general boundary that this chapter puts forth first and foremost is that we must not employ ways and forms of worship of the God of Israel, that pagans used to worship their false gods. That's a biggie. Now, several years ago, I gave a rather extensive teaching on just the word praise. And what we find is that there are more than a dozen Hebrew words used to describe various acts and and, and aspects of honoring the Lord, all of which are typically reduced and translated down into just one single English term, praise. And so we run around saying to one another, well, just what is a good and acceptable way to praise the Lord? Can we raise our hands or do we have to stand with our arms motionless at our sides? Can we shout with joy? Can we dance? Or must we be very somber and quiet? Ironically, each one of those dozen or so Hebrew words that biblical scholars have rather flippantly lumped together and translated to praise is in their original a description of a precise form of acceptable praise. So the Bible actually gives us many different forms of praising God each of which is fairly specific in nature and appropriate under various circumstances. Now I'm not going to get into all those today I'm just illustrating a point and the point is that in verse 6 of Deuteronomy 12 we get a list of things that are almost always bundled together using the general terms sacrifices and offerings. Yet each one of these things has a precise and different meaning. So the scriptures actually gives us a pretty detailed range of just what it is that's to be transported to that Central sanctuary, and then presented to God, and then under what circumstance? Let's look at that list. Now understand that there is a great deal of disagreement as to the meaning of each of these words because most of them have no direct word-for-word translation into any other language from their Hebrew. So every attempted translation is essentially an educated guess that revolves around what the purpose of any particular sacrifice was. For instance, the burnt offering. In Hebrew, olah. Olah is usually thought to mean near offering or that which goes up. And that's referring at least partially to the smoke of the burning sacrifice. It's referring to the animals that are killed and placed on the altar that that get burned up and produce the smoke. With this type of sacrificial offering none of the animal is to be left for either the worshiper or the attending priest to consume for him or herself. The second one is what's often rather sloppily translated as other sacrifices. The actual Hebrew word is seva. Okay, which is a specialized kind of sacrifice that belongs in what's called the shlamim category. And sometimes this is called a peace offering. Now, whatever the exact nature and purpose of the Seva, with this kind of sacrifice, only some of it's burned up on the altar and the remainder is shared between the worshiper and the priests. The third kind, mesdgen, now we're only talking about this passage, not all the kinds there are, just this passage. Okay? is the tithe. Now you've all heard that one. Okay, Literally, in English, the tenth. Now the primary function of the tithe was for support of the tabernacle and later the temple. Included in that support was support of those Levite workers who performed various needed functions around the tabernacle. Most of that support was in the form of farm produce and and animals, again, not as sacrifices, per se, but simply as a means of direct support for the tabernacle workers. And over time, as the Hebrew culture evolved and a smaller part of of the society was agricultural-based, with a growing demographic of traders and merchants and craftsmen, then money was given in lieu of animals and produce. The fourth thing that's mentioned in these passages is something called a terumah, which means contributions. And the Hebrew indicates giving something that's taken from a a bigger amount. You got this much, you take this much from it and give it. It refers more to something like a first fruits offering and is usually presented as that kind of offering with this strange name that we've heard about called the, the heave offering. Okay. It's an offering that's presented by lifting it, the, the priest lifts it above his shoulders and he waves it around. Okay, And if you're thinking, my gosh, there's a lot of kinds of giving expected of a worshiper, you're right. The tithe is just one form of giving. The contribution, equivalent to first fruits, was another. And a person was to give them both and others in addition. Next were the votive and free will offerings. In the Hebrew, neder. These were sacrifices and gifts that the results of vows. That if God would do something for the person making the vow, or maybe even keep something bad from happening, then that person would give some agreed to amount or thing to God in return. Now understand that this nadir was not the promised gift to God. It was just what accompanied the vow ritual. And on the other hand... There was a kind of nadir in which a worshiper simply gave something as an expression of gratitude or thanksgiving where nothing was vowed or promised. It was just spontaneous giving out of joy, thankfulness. Finally, we have the designation of firstlings or bekarah in Hebrew. Another way of saying this is the firstborn. The idea is to give the firstborn of your flocks and herds to the Lord. So while first fruits, terumah, Involved produce, first lings, bekorah, involved living creatures. Now you can see, the whole point of taking this time is to show you there's quite a wide range of offerings and sacrifices for several different purposes. To lump them all together simply misses the point. All right? And it fails to teach us much about what's expected of us regarding giving and, and sacrifices. We saw the same thing back in Leviticus when attached to a range of different atoning sacrifices where the specific kinds of sins were each designed to atone for something specific. It all worked together. And it starts to make it very apparent that there is this very complex and multifaceted nature to sin and atonement that's otherwise obscured in more typical Christian doctrine that's a sin, is a sin, is a sin, no matter what it is. Now verse 7 makes it clear that the entire household is to be involved with the giving of these various sacrifices and offering, particularly when it comes to feasting. One has to reach between the lines a little bit here to get an overall understanding of what's being spoken about. See, this is referring to the three annual pilgrimage festivals whereby each family is to come to the tabernacle, later on to the temple, to celebrate and to sacrifice. And Deuteronomy makes it quite clear that indeed the whole family is to come, not just the male head of the house. These are feasts of joy. They're God's appointed times. The whole family is to join in. Now let me remind you that between Exodus and Leviticus seven biblical feasts were established and three of them are called Hag or pilgrimage festivals. Meaning that the family makes a required pilgrimage to the central sanctuary. Most of the time that meant Jerusalem. Jerusalem. By definition, the other four feasts were not pilgrimage festivals. Therefore, this family could celebrate those locally, wherever they lived. Although if they chose to go to the temple or tabernacle in Jerusalem, they they certainly could and did often. Let me also make note that in very short order, one certain non-pilgrimage biblical feast became combined with one of the required pilgrimage feasts so the effect was that four Bible feasts were usually celebrated at the temple and not three Passover Pesach is not a pilgrimage feast technically Okay, but the feast that starts the day after Passover which is what? Matzah what is it? Unleavened bread, matzah, right That is the pilgrimage feast. Because these two feasts were held on consecutive days and because just like church folks today kind of prefer to have celebrations held at a church building on certain meaningful days like Christmas and New Year's, it was logical that the Israelite families would prefer to have Passover at the awesome temple complex. Therefore, They would just go ahead and celebrate Passover in Jerusalem by arriving a day early before the start of the required pilgrimage festival, the Feast of Matzah. So they kind of killed two birds with one stone. Now beginning in verse 8, the rules about restricting sacrifice to only one place are kind of fleshed out a little bit. And in doing so, we are introduced to yet another fundamental God principle. Boy, we hit these, you need to write them down. Okay, it is that Yehovah, not men, authorizes the way the Lord is to be worshiped. Okay, and that the proper worship of God consists of His ordained ceremonies that are to proceed in His ordained ways at His ordained times. This is another of those principles that most modern believers will respond to with a disinterested yawn and say, well, of course I worship how God wants wants me to, but come on, this is the 21st century. I have complete freedom to worship when I want, where I want, how I want. There's no rules about anything. Folks, that's just not true. It's not biblical. While we are certainly not obligated to worship at a wilderness tabernacle, we're not obligated to recite precise words. We don't have one particular order of service we have to do. We're not restricted to praying only at certain times and places. The Lord has given us dates and times and ways, he says, he does want us to worship Him. Rather, it's merely religion otherwise that the Canaanites were practicing. Religion that the Lord here in Deuteronomy is ordering destroyed. Okay. Oh, one of the most eminent conservative fundamental Bible scholars of our day is Walter Kaiser Jr. Get up on the internet. Anything you can find written by this man get it in your library and read it. It is superior. He is an academic dean at the famed Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And his works have probably, behind the scenes, affected modern church doctrines and theologies of the evangelical movement anyway about as much as anyone currently alive. Now listen to this rather surprising thing he has to say about the Old Testament and its rules and its regulations as it pertains to our modern Christian worship practices and our worship doctrines. This is Dr. Walter Kaiser Jr. He says this, In order to make up for the hiatus of instruction of all sorts of practical questions about how to deal with everyday problems such as youth conflicts, and the like, evangelicals flock by the thousands in every major metropolitan area to special seminars as an open testimony to their hunger for true biblical instruction on matters that were actually dealt with in the Old Testament law. To be sure, most of these seminars on youth problems and marriage enrichment and business management techniques drew heavily on the biblical wisdom books of the Old Testament like Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. But what few have realized and what still remains as one of the best kept secrets to this very day is that these same wisdom books have as their fountainhead the Law of Moses. One need only to take a marginally competent reference Bible and notice how frequently the texts of Proverbs, for example, directly quotes or alludes to the books of Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy in its popularized bumper-sticker way of theologizing. Just these few examples should be enough to warn the contemporary pastor and teacher, we must overcome our inherited prejudice against the Old Testament, especially as concerns the law. We must immediately move to balance the spiritual diet of God's people. Few people today would espouse a junk food nutritional plan as a regular plan of good eating. But how many Christians prefer to eat only the dessert that's found in the New Testament? In order to address this imbalance, we must begin to use the Old Testament in a more balanced and holistic teaching ministry. That ought to go up on a few walls next to the Ten Commandments. Now I realize that Torah class members and listeners have been drinking from a fire hose now for several years as we've worked our way carefully through the Torah of God. But what we must not do is think that just because these books contain a lot of detail and history, that what we have here is but a collection of interesting historical facts as, retained, as, as, as pertains to an ancient people because it has everything to do with us whether we're Jews or Gentiles. Okay. And in no way are believers free from obedience to the God principles presented to us nor from observance of God's appointed times as they're stated in the Law of Moses. Certainly these are not what brings us our redemption. Nor were they at ever at any time in history a source of redemption. Okay? But these are and remain the principles for worship, the principles for right living as a redeemed people that we're fully expected to follow. since the body of Christ has determined for some time now to abandon the laws and rules of God in favor of, uh, in favor of unfettered individual liberty instead of following our own hearts, All right, we lament and complain that the church seems to have lost its way, if not its spiritual power. Is it any wonder? Okay. As both the Old Testament and New explain, obedience to God and experiencing His power are completely tied together as a quid pro quo. Therefore, as does Walter Kaiser Jr., I ask you, re-examine your worship practices and the ways you celebrate and follow the Lord to see if perhaps they might not all be in harmony with God's ordinances. Because if they're not... The next question to ask is, who is then, who is it then in reality that I'm following? Who then am I trying to please? The Lord addresses that exact question in verse 8. And He says, that you're not to act as you act now, every man as he pleases. Let me rephrase that. You've been pleasing yourselves, or following the political correctness of the world, or adhering to the philosophical doctrines of religion, but you're doing it in my name and I don't like it. And I don't accept it. When has this doing as every man sees is right in his own eyes been occurring, all during the wilderness journey. But as verse 9 says, now that you're entering the land of promise, stop it. Stop it now. Instead, verse 10, when they cross the Jordan and enter the place of peace and rest and security that God's offered, obey these commands that we're giving you back on Mount Sinai. And in doing so, you'll rejoice in your inheritance, along with your family, along with your slaves, even with the Levites, before the presence of God, of God. Now let me summarize this short section of Deuteronomy about just what's being ordered here concerning worship and sacrifice. There is God's acceptable way on one end of the spectrum, and there's man's unacceptable way at the other end of the spectrum. There's no middle ground. There's no happy medium. The Hebrew people can't serve themselves and serve the God of Israel. They can't serve both Yehovah on the one end and the God of the Canaanites on the other. Not even if it's mostly serving God and just a little bit serving Baal. This exact sentiment was put another way. 1,300 years into the future by Yeshua. Matthew 6.24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other or he'll hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and Mammon. Verse 15 introduces a necessary, practical, and rather radical shift for the Israelites as they were about to set up life in the promised land. And it is that they're now going to be permitted to eat meat without it first being given as a sacrifice. Now let me remind you that up to this point, since the law had been given on Mount Sinai, that the ordinance was that all meat from domestic animals that the Hebrews hoped to eat first had to be part of a sacrificial ritual accomplished by the priesthood at the Wilderness Tabernacle. Now I emphasize domestic animals because it was always permitted for Israel to eat meat from undomesticated animals like deer provided it was kosher. That is... This undomesticated species had to follow some laws set down in the Law of Moses, such as they chewed the cud, had a cloven hoof, a couple other requirements, and there were several animals specifically prohibited as food as well. Now for all practical purposes, the animals that formed the typical flocks and herds that came along with Israel, on their exodus from Egypt, were classified as domestic animals and therefore clean animals, meaning they were ritually pure and therefore they were acceptable for altar sacrifices to Yehovah. But even kosher, wild animals were not permitted to be sacrificed to God. So the rule was, as concerns domestic animals... Whatever was suitable for sacrifice was acceptable for food for the people. Pretty simple rule. And that people could only eat meat of their domestic animals that had first been offered as a sacrifice. Now because of where they lived, mainly at the western end of the Arabian Peninsula and the Sinai Desert, there was precious little wild game. Venison, though acceptable, would have been pretty rare. And most families likely never even had the privilege of tasting it. Birds would have been a lot more available. Because even though the quail episode we read about a while back was a miraculous event, it was actually usual for enormous flocks of quail to fly over the Sinai and settle on the ground occasionally for a a rest. Right, None of those were required to be a, sacrif- a sacred offering before they could be eaten. The new rule is that a line is being drawn between the eating of meat to satisfy hunger and the eating of meat the offering of meat, rather, for sacred purposes. Because God operates as He does, and most everything He ordains is not for His benefit, but for our benefit, even at times if we don't see it. One of the practical benefits of the Lord ordaining only eating of animals from their herds and flocks during their wilderness journey after they've been offered as a a sacrifice is that it prevented their herds and flocks from being decimated when they got hungry. It was a lot of trouble, as you can imagine, to take an animal out of your herd and flock up to the tabernacle to be ritually slaughtered and then generally the worshiper only got a little bit of it back for food. Can you imagine the long lines of people wanting to make sacrifices at the tabernacle, but the relatively limited facilities that were able to accommodate them? Therefore, meat, just as desirable to them as it is to us, wasn't eaten all that often. And since meat spoiled in a matter of hours out in that desert... Whatever was slaughtered had to be cooked and eaten completely and immediately. There was no doling it out over several days' time. Yeah, they would learned to dry meat and preserve it, and it did occur, but they had to be at a place where that process could be set up, and even the animals available to do that were relatively few. Now, what we understand by the beginning verse of this section of Deuteronomy 12 is that obviously the people did not obey this rule. Okay? They did what we tend to do. We obey some of what God says and kind of ignore the rest when it's not real convenient. Okay? The people positively craved meat. And you know, when we crave anything, our natures take over and we'll do things we ought not to do when we have a craving. But now that Israel is about to enter into a settled life with lots of grazing land and an ability to grow their herds and flocks to a, a much greater number, the risks of decimating their flocks that were necessarily limited in size due to the small amount of grazing and water that was available during their wilderness journey, all that was ending. Obviously, God had already approved eating meat, even if it was a real inconvenience to do so because of that sacrificial requirement. So the Lord is now telling Israel to help themselves to as much as they want. But there's some boundaries even to that new freedom. And we're going to take that up next time.